Thank you very much. Okay. Well, we are getting to the end of our series that we've been covering the entire year. And as you will remember, um, this series has been interspersed with different liturgical meditations on the church year so that I think that's a nice interweaving with our series. In previous times we've done, we've interwoven with this building itself, which we will talk about, which I would encourage you, as we mentioned last time with Dan Horn's incredible meditation on love, which was strangely and perfectly timed with the death of Ethan Roser, and because he concluded with, who is a student at Wheaton College, who many of you will know, tragically died just a week ago. And when he talked about the concluding lines from C.S. Lewis of, if you contain your heart, if you keep it closed, um, it will be safe, but it will grow hardened, and the only place where it ultimately will be safe is in hell. But if you give it, it will be broken. And I want you to think about that in this way because seeing so much grief on our campus and nevertheless seeing the nearly miraculous testimony of his mother within 30 hours of his death to take the microphone at a second event, which you would never counsel anyone to ever do. Do not let the parents speak. That's what every grief playbook would say. But the Holy Spirit doesn't go by our grief playbooks. And she got that microphone and testified to how God prepared her for that death. Prepared her in a miraculous and strange way, as was her husband prepared for this event that came upon their lives. I will not quickly forget that testimony to see uh, the way she bore witness to her faith in Christ in the midst of what is the worst nightmare for parents. And I think of that in the way, again, to meditate upon this building. Think of this building as your heart. And this could be sealed off and closed, right? A steel box that doesn't let anyone in. But it has been pierced by the Beatitudes. That's how we think about these windows. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. It has been witness to it and, and in some ways connected to the sufferings of Jesus. That's what it means to have a Christian heart. That's why the stations of the cross are there with those almost caution tape road sign, warning, warning, this is not just pious sentimentality here, this is serious suffering. And then as we discussed, it's been illuminated by the law, the Ten Commandments. And all of those commandments still mean something. And then the two great commandments up here, this light. And then crowning it all is this crown of thorns that I always want to wrench away. I want to cut it down. I do not want humility to be at the center of my heart. I want a really nice gold shining crown to be there. And yet that crown has been placed there. I remember the first time I was here, which was Palm Sunday, uh, 2011, I was sitting right here, and I just realized, like, this is really intimidating to have to humble yourself underneath this crown when you come to receive the Eucharist. And 
you kneel here, and this is, you will have noticed, a face. Because if that's the head, where are the eyes? Where is the mouth? Well, the mouth is the scriptures that is placed there liturgically so that the Lord speaks, right? That is the word that the pulpit comments upon and illuminates his words, right, that come forth here. And the face of Jesus is, like it or not, in the face of one another (laughs) as we gather around this altar. Christ (laughs) plays in 10,000 places, lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. We are the body of Christ. Oh, we need some... uh, No, no, don't be sorry. Bouncing. There we go. We've had some audio fun this morning already. Glad to see it continue. So, um, and this is the sense of the body of Christ is not just the sacrament. Of course, course, not just um, Jesus risen. And he indeed, that is his first and primary and in some senses ultimate body, the risen body of the Lord. But doesn't the scripture also say that he his body is in the bread and the wine, and that we are his body. So this church is doing so much theological work in the way that it's constructed. And so we've unpacked that in previous uh, years as we've thought about, alongside of our different theme, we've thought about this building. And I'm thinking as we move forward, maybe what we need to do is also to unpack the liturgy as have this time of catechesis to unfurl and um, explore some of the things that we do that are also so loaded, the way that our prayers are written out, we we can do that as we move forward. So when we look at this as we conclude, this is the last time we have to really talk about and maybe to sum up our virtue series because we thought it would be wonderful for Jim Leonard to conclude us with the quote-unquote virtue of joy. And that is going to be the trampoline that sort of sends us off into the summer, and some of us will be staying right here, but joy will be kind of the, the overcast, beautiful glory that we'll think about as we move, and some of us will depart, some of us won't be back for a long time. For goodness sakes, this might be one of the last catechesis session for some of you, and I know that might be bittersweet, but this is, I, I hope, a chance to, to wrap some of these themes up. Let's begin in prayer. Father, we think of those headed to Ohio right now for a funeral service. We thank you for the way that the glory of your resurrection is needed, especially this season, for those grieving and afflicted. And we thank you that your promises are true. We pray that you would be with us in this concluding session, be with that service this afternoon and all there, and be with us here in this room. And may this room come alive with the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, that his heart may become our hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't always say this, but my name is Matt Milliner, by the way. There's a lot of assumption that uh, we all know each other here, which isn't always the case, especially for visitors. So I teach art history at Wheaton College, and I am the catechist. I'm not sure never quite sure what that means, but I'm responsible for organizing this catechesis session. And um, when Alan Jacobs was our catechist, he's our catechist emeritus, we would describe him that way, um, 
he, one of the things that meant a lot was when he said, hey, I met with Rowan Williams, and we're not crazy, <laughs> right? Like, I can, who was then the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he said, hey, I, and he said to us, hey, God bless what's going on at All Souls. Because there's a big question, you know, what is this strange experiment that we're up to? And that meant a lot. And so I feel like my job, in a sense, this morning is to give you a similar um, report, a testimony of sorts, um, to uh, some Anglicans that we are, and Episcopalians, that we are in wider conversation with. Um, So I just got back from New York from the Mockingbird Conference, which some of you will have heard of this. The Vestry is reading this book called Law and Gospel, which is a short little book that summarizes this emphasis on grace. And it really was an extraordinary experience because for 10 years, the Church of St. George's in New York City has been a locus for this renewal movement that is rediscovering the message of grace, which seems to need to be rediscovered in every generation. And sadly enough, there's some generations that go by without that rediscovery. Because our hearts are perpetually geared towards self-justification. And there is a tendency in Christianity for our accumulation of learning, virtues, and knowledge to turn into little mini self-justification projects, right? I'm really good. I'm doing all these things. I've got a really good record at going to church, etc. And the Holy Spirit begins to find it difficult to penetrate those little projects. And grace has this wonderful way of shattering all of that. And that is what this Mockingbird Renewal Movement has been about. And a lot of what you will, ha- will hear at 11 or heard at 9, the way that the sermons are inflected here, has a lot to do with the man behind this named Paul Zoll, who is an Episcopal minister who has been the drumbeat of grace has been part of his ministry and his sons put this ministry together and the reason it's called mockingbird is because you need to hear just like a mockingbird says the same thing over and over again you need to hear and i need to hear the message of grace over and over and over and over again because of our heart's desire to accumulate this little structure of virtues that okay now i'm pleasing to you right lord i've done all these things no We're pleasing because of what he has done. And so one of the really interesting conversions in our time has been a woman who started the Toast website. Have you heard of her? Where she came to faith. And she gave, her name is Nicole, gave an incredible testimony about this atheist who just really well known in, in the internet world and just had this conversion experience where grace overtook her life. So she spoke. It was so incredible to see her right there in the middle of New York City testifying to how all of her atheist friends, she had to kind of say, well, yeah, you know, Jesus, he he won me. He took my heart. And to see someone of that stature explain that was pretty extraordinary. And maybe most interestingly was Fleming Rutledge. Now, she wrote this incredible book called The Crucifixion. She is an Episcopal priest, one of the first women to be ordained. And She got up, and you're wondering, what is this woman who's now 79, what is she going to share with this group of people? And she was described as the Beyonce of Anglicanism as she she took the stage. And she meditated upon the same scriptures that we are meditating upon today. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. She meditated upon the message 
in Luke of the walk to Emmaus and said that is how seminary was for her when she was studying theology. That the scriptures were approached, oh yeah, those are the people that used to believe in Jesus, (laughs) right? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, was the way that people approach the Bible as this dead document about a religion that once was. It really was approached that way. But what has happened is this renewal in biblical studies so that now indeed the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. That word of the disciples rushing in and saying he actually is risen, that is what she experienced, this renewal going on in the church. And if I may share this with you, she told the most moving story. Because New York changes so fast, it's changing right now. The High Line is just four times as long as it was when I was there last year. And this wonderful contemporary art gallery of which the prairie path was the start, these old railroads that turn into um, pedestrian walkways. It's always changing this city. And she said back in, the, in 1979, this dreary, gritty New York City that so few people can remember, And she's driving in from the suburbs to preach, and she walks in and sees doors shuttered in churches, not a human in sight. It's Easter morning. Where is everybody? And she walked up the steps, and and she's moving toward Grace Church, and she looks across the way, and she sees an usher in gleaming suit with a wonderful pocket square, and he is prepared and ready. And she looks across, and she says, Bob, he is risen. And Bob just fired back, he is risen indeed. And that proclamation just pierced the gritty, dreary Sunday morning with that truth. And I cannot describe to you what it was like to hear her share that. And to say, here I am at 79 years old, and he is indeed alive. My Lord and my God. And we were moved, our hearts burned within us, as we heard the testimony of this woman. So that was really exciting, as was the Episco Disco. <laughs> and it, it, they just said, hey, we're going to have a little dance party in here, and, and strange people come in, and, and you have weird left-field 1970s Christian music being mixed in. It's a little geeky, but, but also kind of, kind of, kind of enjoyable. And what, what I shared with them, the reason I was there is because I um, shared with them some of the things that we've talked about the last year. And so... Everything that uh, we have field tested and thought about in our series is what I presented to them in a more enhanced way. And if you'll remember, um, we've talked about this painting by Andrea Mantegna that you can see at the Louvre, which is an allegory of all of the virtues that we've been unpacking. And what you have is Minerva, wisdom. This, think of this as your heart. Wisdom is moving in, heroic You'll hear the word heroic in the sermon if you haven't already. I'm going to get it done. And all of the vices are being expelled. That is, sloth, that's what this series has been about. Your own wisdom, self-knowledge can expel sloth through your own power from your life. Chastity can just erase anything wrong in your heart. This is what was going on in the early 16th century. And there's no reference to Jesus at all in this image. There is Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, but there's no scripture. Wisdom can do it. And prudence, who is stuck in this cage, if the gods, not God, but the gods, will just liberate prudence, everything's going to be fine. This is Christian humanism in the early 
16th century, and it might be our own self-justification projects in the early 21st century of America. Let's get it done. And what we did in our series is we said, we, if we're going to talk about the virtues, which we've been doing, we have to do that with this essential corrective in the foreground. And this corrective is this law gospel understanding that is present throughout all of Christian history, but that was so buried in the 16th century that it was violently recovered in this Lutheran reform movement that has left its indelible imprint upon Anglicanism. It is over everything. You read the 39 articles and you will see this message there instead. And what I've done, you can barely see it, but I've taken that law gospel message where your self-justification project, I'm going to be the best mother, I'm going to be the best father, I'm going to make it happen, I'm going to be the best student, the best professor, the best who knows what, is here and it's dangerous when we get on that treadmill. The law says do this and it is never done says Luther, even for Christians, the law of getting it done, these Ten Commandments can be oppressive. Trying to, if we think of following them on our own efforts. But who went to, I did not go this year, but who went to the morning Easter vigil here? Something extraordinary happens. Because this building, when you get here at six, is dark. It's very dark. And the light that pierces those windows is not the light of electricity. (laughs) The light that pierces those windows is the light of the risen sun, which symbolizes the rising of Jesus. That is the light that fills this building, and that's the light that fills this building right now. And the Ten Commandments, we still have the electric lights, because if we turned it off, it would be a little bit too dark. But it's in the sense of it is the daylight is primary in this building. Now, what I just described to you, I think, is a brilliant way, thanks to the brilliance of this building, of addressing the great debates that have happened in Christianity as what do we do with Christians who still have to follow the Ten Commandments, right? The law is still important. Well, we have to do so, but it can't become this treadmill of doing it ourselves. It is the light of Jesus Christ complemented by the... Elegant, not so bright, but nevertheless important guides of the Ten Commandments. So think of it in that sense. Grace says, believe this and everything is already done. This is thesis 26 of Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. The law says, do this, and it is never done. He felt on that treadmill as a monk. But the breakthrough came when grace said, believe that Jesus has done it, and it is accomplished. The best things that you can do or I can do in my Christian life are born of this reality that the best things have already been done. (laughs) As one theologian puts it, the Christian life is what to do now that everything has been done. (laughs) And you can rest and relax in that message. And it is a message that I think we especially need today. (laughs) And what's interesting, if you zoom in, Speaking of these lights, I would, oh, if we could just dim them a bit, that would be so wonderful. You know, dim our own self-righteousness and let more of the natural light come in here. Okay? <laughs> Is what's, what, maybe some things, thank you, David. 
some of the things that have been forgotten is that the Virgin Mary shows up in that Lucas Chronic law gospel image. She's there as well. She's essential. But Protestantism has neglected her, and we have room here to bring her back. That's why she shows up in her sidelined place. She's not central, but she's necessary. And so some of the things that we, we forget. And one of the experiments that we attempted was to take both images and smash them together. And to say, what happened is the law gospel message at evangelicalism was so profound and important that we neglected the virtues completely. That we forgot about thinking seriously about, you know, what is temperance? What is prudence? And it's good news that that is being recovered again. And the people who have done the hard work this series unpacking those, it is essential to illuminating our Christian life. But we've got to do so in a way that grace is what is driving it. Grace has to be foregrounded as we do it. And I just remind you again of the words of Gasparo Contarini, who was a Catholic who understood what the reformers were getting at. And he said, the ancient philosophers were capital fools in thinking this purification could be brought about through habit. It need, you need to be jump-started by grace for those habits to occur. And so we take Minerva and we connect Minerva to the soul being rushed into hell through his own self-justification project. And there's Contarini again, the cardinal virtue of justice. <laughs> it's not enough. His justice must become ours. It has to be the justice that Jesus has won for us. And we saw that when Hal talked about it. He explained the justice on its own is insufficient. You need to have God's input because the pagans had justice, but it wasn't enough. And so, and then here we see the virtues at work, but the power of Jesus' resurrection is what makes it happen. So that is one of the inflections that I've brought to this. It's what I brought to that conference to kind of say, hey, you guys are really on the law gospel, the grace side. We are with you here at All Souls, but we also want to emphasize the virtues. I talked about this with Martin once, and I said, what do we do about this paradox? And he talked to me about a beautiful Lutheran, uh, in, I'm sorry, um, a Danish architect and who creates beautiful leather-bound railings in his stairways. And Martin looks at me with the twinkle in his eye and says, you know, we've got to go up the stairs, but railings aren't all bad. We can still be thinking about the virtues to help us go along the way, but let's be careful that we don't cling to them instead of moving through the power of Christ. An interesting analogy to think about there. So that has been our series, and that's one of the emphases that I've tried to bring to this. And what I would like to do as we go through here, we've got... We started with envy. That's my specialty. Um, so, uh, Roy, remember suffering and patience? Remember how that is the stim? Because what suffering works upon you. You don't choose it. And I think that's one of the reasons that Roy's message was so grace-inflected. There was the sense of none of the sufferings that they've gone through have been chosen, and yet that was the furnace of the creation of these virtues that God was permitting for Job and for his family and for Gosha. He gave us two weeks on that. Joel and Bethany, lust and chastity, Ryan, sloth, he gave us that incredible meditation. Remember, going back, wrath, pride, humility, gluttony, abstinence, avarice and liberality, gratitude, prudence, 
justice, fortitude, and temperance. And about halfway through, you saw me burn out on the project. <laughs> halfway through this, and I went through it last year, and, it was, and I loved it. It, it. We had a faculty seminar. But halfway through, I started to realize, oh my goodness, the more I learn about virtue, the less I realize I have it. The less I realize I have it. And that is why I flaked out on you and talked about the grace, grace, grace message that's necessary lest this become a self-justification project. I don't think it's become that in any of our sessions, but that is a reminder that I needed to hear and I've foisted it upon you. And there we go. Faith, hope, and love. And love, and now we move to joy. So what I want to do before I continue, I just have a little short overview of some of the summer seasons that are coming that I don't want us to miss, the festivals that we won't have a chance to talk about. But I want to open it up. Has this been your experience with it? We've had some extraordinary presentations. And the work that has gone into them is considerable. And that's the the, the joy of it is that That's why we need as many people up here as possible because you're getting this formation that happens when you take this podium, which is welcome to all of you. Many of you have emailed me. I look forward to putting next year's together. But open it up for your experiences, reflections on any of the places we've been so that we can spend the whole next week talking about joy. Anybody? I even brought coffee so that I wouldn't just say that and make We want this to be down to earth. We want this to, mit, to hit you in the kitchen, in the kitchen, or the dorm room, or wherever, where you are in your life. Any uh, feedback or experience as to what this series has been like for you? Do you find it um, in competition with the message of grace? Have you found it a self-justification project? Has it simply been illuminating to you and helpful along the way? Uh-huh. It could uh, be. And, and I think one of the great things for me was beginning to understand the virtues a little bit differently, a little bit more expansively. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so even as I talked about legalism, I think Powell's talk on justice yeah. was like completely reorienting and focused for me. Yes. Yeah. And so it's been, and it has been grace infused, hasn't it? I think that it has. None of this has been like, all right, now you get it done. And it, there's this overriding sense of it is no longer we who live, but it's Christ who lives in us, and His virtue becomes ours. 
and our vices become his. <laughs> so I, I, that's how it has been that way for me as well. Any additional comments or, or suggestions? Yes. Elaine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm so glad to hear you say that because we're going to continue that. There's going to be a lot of faces that you have not yet seen up here for our grace series that's coming up. That's going to be about grace, not just theologically or historically, but in practice. Grace in our everyday life, in grace in, for goodness sakes, jazz music. Is that a place where we can contemplate about that? We're going to be hearing about this. Grace in child rearing at the beginning and at the end. Grace in singleness. We're going to have all kinds of possibilities of exploring that as to what this grace message looks like. And I think the virtues are going to have helped us to give a full panoramic view of what the life of grace is like. And I, so, so that none of this effort is wasted as we move ahead. So again, where we are, we did English spirituality in 2015 and 16. We had a fantastic series of reflections on the mystery of Anglicanism that did not start in the 16th century, that started with Augustine and Benedict and others. And we therefore neglected the 16th century in that series because we pretty much jumped over it to focus on things that we don't know as much about. But this time we're going to go back to those English reformers. And we're going to see, you know, who were, the Protestant face of Anglicanism is going to be one of our books that Paul Zoll has written. Who are these figures, such as the English martyrs, that were killed for this emphasis on grace alone? Uh, and saying that faith is the way that you access the righteousness. And to talk about additions is a dangerous thing to do because of our self-justifying projects. Let's give them a hearing and not abandon those figures. They're going to be a part of this as well. So that is coming up, and I simply remind you, this is, I'm not saying this because we don't have enough. We have a lot of people who have come forward. I say it just to give you one last time. Um, the compensation is a book. <laughs> you will get a book. You'll have a choice of which ones you, um, you want to pick. That's all we can offer one another. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of serving this church to be up here, and it's a way of also um, being shaped yourself. So if you would like to participate... And think about a feature of grace or to, to, to recover one of those reformers such as Barnes or Latimer. Brett was really good on Hugh Latimer. Oh, wow. And so if you, I mean, I'm, I'm planning on reading Brett's dissertation as part of this because he did Brett Foster, who's with the Lord and who is a member of this congregation. Um, he, I'm going to unpack some of his riches and the stuff that he did. Um, to kind of continue to be fed, not just from his poetry as we've been fed, but from his scholarship as well. So there's still time to email me, millinerd at gmail.com. And if you don't hear from me and you did email me, get back to me. Maybe the best thing I heard this weekend was um, an English specialist on, a British scholar on productivity. And he said that the founder of Inbox Zero um, ultimately 
said that, went crazy and said that my whole thing was it was just it's in shambles and many of the people who are uh, create these cults of productivity their whole businesses go under and he said that if you get your inbox to zero the problem is you'll only get more emails the more efficient you get at it the more that you'll get. So he's in a, it was just like, thank you for someone telling me it's okay if you're not great at email. So, I, I mean, that's, there's, there's message of grace in the midst from someone who's not even a Christian. Pretty interesting. So if um, you don't hear from me, just email me again. So <laughs> millinerd at gmail.com. We would love to have you up here. I have especially appreciated the feedback that many of you have given me about this series. And um, when it's glowing about someone else, I try to get that message to them because a lot of you have come up to me and said, that was incredible what this other person said. Um, And that feedback is important because um, it has and will be influencing the way we continue to do this. Um, And that's one of this is to get as many people up here as possible. There's not one style of doing things here. We can, we want to be Sometimes we'll be academic, sometimes we'll be practical. Just like we're high church and evangelical, we want to be both of those at the same time. Because there are different vocations that the rest that different of us have. So, and I want to thank you especially for your attendance as we move forward. So that's coming up. Um, last chance on that. I just that slide again. Teaching will transform you. That's one of the exciting things about it. So let's, um, as we move ahead, talk about the seasons. And we've talked in different sessions about Christmas, Epiphany, um, and moving into Lent. And you have to realize that you may hear some wonderful sermons here, but again, the eloquence that goes into the uh, construction of what happens at this altar is one of those most powerful sermons. We've already talked about the the Ten Commandments, um, the way they're structured in the lights, you might say, was this planned from the beginning? Does it matter? Right? <laughs> you know? It, when you're in this building a lot, you begin to reflect theologically upon it. That's just the way it should be. Okay? So, and we, and we talked about our, um, our Epiphany camel out there, which both reminds us of that season of Epiphany, but also of the camel of our wealth that we need to be cautious about and really urgently thinking about that camel sitting on our lawn. We know what that camel means in the New Testament. Think about that. Let it slap you in the face as you leave church. Whoa, be be reminded. Watch out. I say that to myself. My heart does not want to hear it. And so I'm going back to our beautiful images of that come from the early 20th century in Chadwick's wonderful illustrations. We went through Lent. I love how Super Bowl Sunday is beautifully timed with the Babylonian captivity, which is, which is mentioned in Septuagesima. There's we're 70 days from Easter. That's the wonderful. And it just it works with our culture quite nicely. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving, definitely a time of year. I, oh, that where we, it can turn into our self-righteousness project, can't it? Um, but one of the things that happens, here's March, we have the Feast of Aquinas, who's one of our Anglican saints. Sorry, to, I know that offends some of my Catholic friends, but we have um, recruited him, shall we say, because he's so important to English spirituality. And we also have the freedom to believe what he believes about the Virgin Mary. 
whereas um, that is no longer the case in our big brothers and sisters, the Catholics. Um, they, they threw Thomas under the, under the bus on that issue, but that's a whole other story. Okay, So we move in. We've got Holy Week, we, and there's Annunciation Day. We talked about we want to emphasize the Immaculate Conception of not Mary, but Jesus. And that happened on March 25th. No matter whether she was pure or sinless, and that's the debate, folks. That's, I know I'm alluding to a lot of issues here. The debate was whether or not she had to be pure or sinless for him to be born in her. Thomas Aquinas thought, not necessarily. She, there was a time where she had sin as we did. And the Catholic Church has said, no, she had to be pure and sinless. But Anglicans have the freedom to say, you know what? Maybe she was like us, and maybe... Just like God has made us pure through the cross, maybe that's what he did with her as well. Maybe she was a woman like you and I, (laughs) or like women in this room especially. (laughs) A human like you and I. Okay, that's, that's a little better. There we go. So we move into Holy Week, and these are these beautiful unpackings of the tradition, and here's the way that Chadwick has created. And again, all of these are freely available online. The link is on our website. And they're just ripe to be recovered. We go into April. We were just finished the great day of St. George, St. Mark. We have that feast. Move in. St. Catherine of Siena is celebrated. This is all in our Anglican tradition. And one of the things to do is to look at, I love this, St. James calendar. And as we look ahead, we see that our building was deconstructed, our whole self-righteousness projects were deconstructed over the course of Holy Week. This building was, in some senses, beautifully enhanced. These are candle displays from another year, but it was stunning the way that the candles were constructed, and this building was, in some sense, ripped apart. The beauty of this building was enshrouded. Did you notice during the Triduum that there was one moment in the darkness of the Good Friday celebration, or mornings, we could say, where the light just ever so gently showed up on Jesus' face and then disappeared again. We had this one little seen through the tunnel, and then it went away. Somebody was there messing with the fading. It was a theological statement. We weren't ready for that image yet. But what has occurred, there's Palm Sunday. And now just a few images of, oh, hold on, I'm uh, moving ahead. And now we move along. We are in the season after in Easter where we think about and meditate upon this image as we move ahead that is, of course, inspired, as we've discussed before, by San Clemente in Rome, which was a church that was itself going through a scriptural renewal when this mosaic was made, is that we're now ready to focus on this. As many of us go to different parts of the world, we go through that door. This building has been deconstructed, and in the glory of the resurrection, we walk underneath that waterfall and think perhaps about some of the places that we might travel as we go in different directions. And I always think about the immediacy of Lincoln Marsh around us means that we are in touch with the beauty of creation that is singing praises to Christ. Here are some of Joel's images as he goes out and captures the liturgy of creation. I don't think it's enough to go to creation alone. I hope we don't think that. We don't. 
But this building is in some sense is trying to do what all of creation is trying to do. That is, give praise to Christ. And it's signaled in that painting that we were in some senses meant to not meditate upon too much during Lent. And now we can look at it again. It's very intentional that it is in the back and not in the front. As we move into May, the church here blossoms in line with the natural surroundings that we're with, which makes me feel bad for Christians in the Southern Hemisphere, but that's okay. Um, We're not there. As the earth comes to life again, as Easter renewal and we celebrate the resurrection, the May feasts surround us. The Venerable Bede is celebrated. Augustine is celebrated in May. These great saints that are a part of our tradition, an essential part of it. And we're in the middle of the celebration of the resurrection, but ascension is coming. And if there was no ascension day, and I've got the exact day, and of course Pentecost is coming as well, let me move, um, I've got, here we go. So in May, ascension day, this is our calendar. This is from the St. James calendar, which I really recommend you get. It has Catholic, Orthodox, and and Anglican festivals in it so that you can map where you are in the church year. May 25th is the Feast of the Ascension. And that is a reminder that it could have been the case that after going through all of the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus could have laid his body aside and said, thank goodness I'm done with this limitation of the flesh. I mean, it is conceivable that he might have done that, right? He zips it off like Krishna and just goes back into the ether. But he brought his body with him all the way up so that human nature is in Trinitarian life like it wasn't before the Incarnation, even after all this. The Ascension is a neglected feast day, and it's hugely important for the dignity and importance of our bodies, that he never got rid of it. He still has it even after having gone through all that he went through. That's how important it is, our embodied life. And so when you are, wherever you are, on May 25th, remember that Feast of the Ascension. And if you are an iPhone or a smartphone person, get that daily prayer app. So you know what? You may not do it all the time, but at least check because it'll tell you, ah, it's the Ascension. Notice and don't neglect that day. As we move into June, some of you will be recreating in one way or another. Some of you will just be doing what you always do, which is fine as well. As this world grows more beautiful, think of St. Alban, St. Basil. Know about these figures that are celebrated in this time of the year. And we have the Sundays after Trinity. Trinity Sunday, we have Pentecost on June 4th, where after... Oh, we're done, we're done, we are so done. Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, okay. Well, we'll just, we'll just, I just, we'll, we'll get us to, to August and then, and then we'll, and then we'll, we'll kill it. Okay. So June 4th is Pentecost. So we'll, we'll wear our red, if you'll hear, where after he ascends, he doesn't leave us comfortless and he sends the Holy Spirit. And so once that feast is celebrated, we can finally have Trinity Sunday. Because in some senses, until the Holy Spirit comes, we were prepared liturgically to talk about the fullness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we've always been talking about that, but you have to do a kind of an imaginative um, 
memory lapse when you go through the church year and realize that until Trinity Sunday, the fullness of, until Pentecost, the fullness of Revelation did not come. And so that is on March 11th. And then as we move, and then we move into July where we have St. Thomas the Apostle in the third. We have a couple, not too many big feast days there moving into August. And then we're already at the point we're radiating in what shouldn't be called ordinary time, but is. <laughs> it is a time where we're meditating upon the fullness of Trinitarian revelation all throughout the summer. And when we get back here in September, we start the whole cycle again. So keep your eye on that church calendar. Maybe the most important August day to remember is the Feast of the Transfiguration which is the big one. We had a little one in Lent, but we've got a big one on August 6th. And let that be in your mind amidst the beauties that you see throughout the summer as well. I will leave it at that. I look forward to joy next week from Jim. And thank you for your participation and contributions to this series.